Hi, everyone. Thank you so much for tuning in to the Inspire Churches podcast. We're a church in Union City that loves Jesus. Our hope is that you'd be inspired to grow in God's Word as reflected in loving Christ more and more every day. So wherever you are, be a light. To find more teachings or donate to the ministry, visit us at inspirechurches.com. So it is great to, for Becca and, and myself to be back. Um, and uh, a few weekends ago, I flew out to go speak at an event. And, you know, being my size and entering a plane is always interesting just because, you know, planes are smaller. And it's so funny because when you get on it, people look at me and they're just getting a little bit nervous, you know, like, where are they going to put that thing, you know? And they're like praying that I'm not the one sitting next to them, you know? But we had a great time, and, and it was good. And anyway, I'm glad, to be, I'm glad to be back. Well, last week, we kicked off our Advent series. And what we're really doing is we are looking at the genealogy of Jesus. And uh, Pastor Phil read from Matthew chapter 1, and he read the first 17 verses um, of this genealogy, if you remember. And it just basically lists a bunch of names, and over 40 names to be exact. And what we're doing is we are going to look at that genealogy. And that's because every name that is written, you need to know, represents a life that paved a way for Jesus Christ to come. Every life, every name that is read represents a life that paved a way for Christmas, you see, for Christmas. And so it's important. And so I don't know about you, but usually, uh, you know, those are the kind of things that you tend to skip when you do your devotion. When you go and you start reading through the Gospels, you kind of skip over, you know, who begat who and who begat who and the son of this and the son of that and the father of this person and the father of that person and the father of that other person. And you try to speak all these names that you can't pronounce. And, but the reality is, is that it's important. And in fact, there's three things that really we would love for you to walk away with, with a new understanding and encouragement on the genealogies of Jesus. Uh, We want you to be encouraged this holiday season. We, We know the stress that comes. We know that along with the glimmering, glittering lights and the festivities that there are, is also a side of angst or depression, a side of loneliness and sadness. And so we want to encourage you. And, and I hope that this Advent series does just that. But there's three things that we're really specifically hoping the genealogy does for you. Number one is that it's grounded in history. Number one is grounded in history. The, the names, the places, the particulars, they point to the fact that this person, Jesus Christ, is not some mystical being, not some made-up legend, but rather Matthew is careful to show us that Christ is grounded in human history. In fact, there is not an ancient historian today. Notice I didn't say Christian historian. There's not an ancient 
ancient historian today that will not testify to the fact that there was a man named Jesus Christ of Nazareth. And that is fact. Number two, beauty from brokenness. We hope that when you look at the genealogy of Jesus, that you'll begin to see it from a different light, from beauty to brokenness. Because see, when you take the time not just to gloss over the text and quickly skip over the names, but inspect it, you'll be shocked because no one would have expected the sinless son of God to descend from a defiled dynasty. And yet, When you look at this genealogy, you do not see perfect people with perfect paths. But as Pastor Phil said last week, from abusers to the abused. You see, Jesus Christ is coming from a scandalous genealogy. One that we would have never anticipated. Showing that there is no sin so gross that grace cannot cover. There is no person so far that his love cannot reach. And then number three, that God is trustworthy. That God is faithful. See, the names that are recorded are recorded to show God's faithfulness to his word that God finishes what he starts and that God will always keep his promise. And even when you and I do not keep our promise to him, he is always keeping his promise to us. Even when we are not faithful to him, he is always faithful to us. I wish I could preach this message like I'd really want to, but last week I got sick and so my voice is still recovering. So I may need some help from you over here that have a few amens and everything else in you. And so when you look at Matthew chapter one and you look at the first 17 verses and the names that are there, there is one name that we're going to be focusing on today and that is Ruth. Ruth. The book of Ruth is an amazing little book and It's almost like when you go to the jewelers and you want to see a diamond and they set out a black cloth and they put the diamond on it. And that's because in contrast to the black cloth, the diamond shines much more bright. Well, the backdrop to the book of Ruth is the period of the judges. And if you've read the book of Judges, you'll know that it was a dark time. Like today, when people see tragedy and horrific acts and they ask, where is God in the midst of all of this? This is the kind of thing that people were saying in the period of the judges. Into all of that darkness, into all of that fearfulness, where do we find God? Where is he at work? And the answer, as always, is that you find it in the strangest of places. Here in a small community is where our story begins. It's a small town. The village of bread is what it means. It's Bethlehem. And in this little tiny town where it seems like nothing but routine is going on, we see the unfolding of God's redemptive plan. Reminding us that we don't want to make the mistake of assuming that we'll always find God in the most obvious of places. Much like when the wise men saw the star and went looking for the long foretold king of the Jews, where did they first look? Well, 
They went to the palace of Herod, of course. Why? Where else would you look for a king? Of course you're going to look in a palace. And yet he was not there, was he? Instead, the wise men found themselves out in the country in a cave where there were some cattle and there were sheep and inside of a feeding trough was born the king of the Jews, the Messiah. And here in this odd little book, against the backdrop of evil, pain, and suffering, we find God. Ruth, like a diamond, begins to sparkle. And I'm going to read to you, actually, the climax of this portion of the book of Ruth. And so in Ruth chapter 4, starting in verse 13, it reads like this. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. Then he went to her, and the Lord enabled her to conceive, and she gave birth to a son. Then the woman said to Naomi, Praise be to the Lord, who this day has not left you without a kinsman redeemer. May he become famous throughout Israel. He will renew your life and sustain you in your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you and who is better to you than seven sons has given him birth. Then Naomi took the child, laid him in her lap and cared for him. Then the woman living there said, Naomi has a son. And they named him Obed. And he was the father of Jesse, who was the father of David. Heavenly Father, I pray, Lord Jesus, that you help us understand what we cannot, that you help us to become who we cannot. And Lord God, that, we, that you will help us to continue to be shaped and molded into your likeness. So that way, my God, during this holiday season, God, that we will be able to get closer to you. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. And amen. So let me just tell you the story of Ruth. There's a guy named Elimelech, and him and Naomi were married. What they did was they ended up, uh, they ended up moving with her and her two sons because there was a famine in Israel. Now the name of Naomi's two sons was Melon and Kilion. Now, what's interesting is that these were not Jewish names. These were Canaanite names. They weren't Hebrew names. They were Canaanite names. And when they moved, they moved to the land of Moab, and they uh, married two pagan Moabite women, Orpha and Ruth. And this is really interesting because what happens is as they, as they fled uh, Israel, as they fled their homeland and they went uh, to seek a land where there was no famine, they did this out of fear of death. And yet, in the land of Moab, what happened is they ended up dying anyway. Ruth's husband and both of Ruth's sons ended up passing away, leaving Naomi to be by herself by herself. Now it's interesting that they went to Moab because Moab was really the enemy of Israel. But they did it because they were scared that they were going to die. However, they died anyway. And so now Naomi is left with only her and her two daughter-in-laws. And so Naomi is utterly hopeless. 
She's without hope. She's without economic hope. She's without any hope at all because how is she going to survive? Really, there's only four possibilities for Naomi. Possibility number one is she works in the fields, but she's too old to do that. Possibility number two is that she gets married. But see, she's too old to get married because then the purpose of marriage in that culture was to bring about heirs and have a family. And she's too old to do that. And so she wouldn't get married. Number three is that your children support you. But she has no children. They died. Her sons have died. And so the fourth thing that you would have done is you would have been able to rent your land. But see, when they moved, they had to sell their land. So she literally in that society was bereft of everything that could give her meaning. She had absolutely nothing because she had no family. She had no land. Therefore, she had no name. Therefore, she had no significance. She was hopeless. In fact, so much so that she began to tell people, don't call me Naomi anymore. Call me Mara because I am bitter I went away full and I came back empty. Don't call me Naomi, call me Mara. Isn't it interesting how we can let the circumstances of life change our identity? Isn't it interesting how because of the various things that we'll go through, all of a sudden the person that we once were, we are no longer. Someone that was kind, but because they've been hurt, now they're bitter. Someone who was once trustworthy that used to trust people and open up. Now, because they have been hurt, they put up walls, you see. Isn't it interesting how we let circumstances change who we are? Now, before we dive too deeply into this text, there's a subtle principle that I want to lay out here which is throughout the book of Ruth, you end up seeing this phrase that she happened to do this and she happened to do that. And that's really true because what ends up happening is Naomi decides to go back to her homeland. She has nothing there. She has nothing left. And so she goes back to her homeland and and Ruth ends up going with her. and, And when Ruth goes with her, one of the first things that Ruth does is she goes to glean in a field And the Bible says she just happened to glean on a particular field. But what you need to know is that nothing in God just happens. There is no quinkadinks. There are no, you know, coincidences. There are no happenstances. Nothing in God just happens. God is fully in control. He is fully in control. There isn't a drop of rain that he doesn't know about. There isn't a leaf that falls that he is not aware of. There isn't a star that shoots across the sky that he did not already know was going to do that. He is fully and utterly in control. He is not surprised by anything. He doesn't say, oops. He doesn't say that was an accident. He doesn't say I wasn't expecting it. He doesn't say, oh dear, oh my. He doesn't bite his fingernails. He doesn't twiddle his thumbs. He is not worried. He is not stressed out. He is not wishing. He is not hoping. His fingers are not crossed. He is utterly in control of everything. You need to know that. And what that means is you can trust him. You can trust him. Tim Keller says this, trust is accepting what God sends in your life, whether you understand it or not. 
Putting our faith in Christ is not about trying harder. It means transferring our trust away from ourselves and resting in him. In other words, if you say, I believe in God, I trusted God, but you know what? He didn't come through. If you say that, then what you're really saying is you only trusted God to meet your agenda. But if you're going to understand this little book of Ruth, you're going to have to always keep in mind that God is in control. And so Naomi decided to go back to Bethlehem. And for the remainder of our time this morning, I want to talk about three things from this story. A redeemer we see, a redeemer we don't see, and the redeemer we need. A redeemer we see, a redeemer we don't see, and the redeemer we need. Let's start with a redeemer we see. See, the first thing Ruth does in order to try to support Naomi and herself is she decides to go and to glean in a field. Now, according to Jewish law, according to Hebrew law, to God's law, the landowners could not harvest all the way to the edges of the field. In other words, they were not allowed to fully maximize their profits. They were not allowed to harvest all the way to the edges, but, but, but around the edges, they had to leave grain so the poor could come and glean from it, you see? And so Ruth decided, now I'm going to go and I'm going to glean, I'm going to glean. Now, it almost sounds as if, well, that's the solution. We've lost everything. Now we're over here. And, and now we're going to go glean. There's there, problem solved. But no, problem isn't solved because Ruth is a Moabite. She was a Moabite. And that's a very dangerous thing, you see. It's a very dangerous thing for her to be out in that field being not just a woman, but a Moabite woman. And so because of that, what's interesting is that field that she ends up gleaning from was owned by a man named Boaz. And in chapter two, Boaz says, who is this woman? And, and he finds out who Ruth is. And he begins to talk to her and says, my daughter, don't go into any other field, but gather among my working women. And I have told my men not to touch you. Now, this actually tells us a lot, tells us a lot. First of all, Boaz knows that Ruth could be hurt. She could be abused. She could be even killed by his own men. And so he warns his men not to touch her. Because remember, a Moabite is the enemy of God's people. And so the Moabites were descendants of Sodom. So they were seen as horrible, wicked people by the Israelites. And, and of course, the, the Mo, and, and, and the Moabites oppressed the Israelites and so forth. And so therefore he knew that she really had the potential to get hurt. Number two, not only that, but he didn't want her gleaning off the edges because the poor might also hurt her. So not just his men, but also the poor that would come in to glean could also hurt her, abuse her, take advantage of her, or even kill her. And so he says, I want you to stay with my working women so that you can harvest and take some for yourself. And what's interesting is, as she began to harvest, is, is, is Boaz made sure that she didn't just get a little, but that she got a lot. And so that night she goes home to Naomi, 
And she doesn't just have a few gleanings. She has an incredible lap full of grain. And Naomi says, well, where, where did you get this? And Ruth says, well, listen, I, I was gleaning on a field and, 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 and it happened to be by this man named Boaz. And Ruth says, Boaz? Do you know who Boaz is? He is our gals. Gals. In other words, he's our kinsman redeemer. He's our kinsman redeemer. That word kinsman redeemer is a Hebrew word. And what it means is he is the person. That person is the formal redeemer. He is kin by blood. And he is the formal person that can redeem Naomi. That can redeem Naomi. Why? Well, because in Jewish law, there's an extremely interesting law, which you can read sometime in Leviticus 25. Um, and what he does is, is God sets up his uh, people in such a way that as they begin to own land, God knows that business is going to happen. People are going to fall into debt. Situations are going to happen. And God wants his people to be able to get his land back. And so that's one of the gracious things that God adds into the society. Because God didn't want his society to be, to be, to be characterized by this incredible uh, difference of rich and poor. And so what would happen is every 50 years was what was called the year of Jubilee. And the year of Jubilee means that everybody, anybody who had lost their land because of whatever, they could get their land back. Those ancestors could get their land back. Secondly, is before the 50 years, because 50 years is a long time. So before the 50 years was up, was up the, the kinsmen in the family, the kinsmen actually had the ability to redeem the land back. They could actually pay to get the land back if it was lost. So they could, get the, they could redeem it out of debt. The land could be ransomed and the land could be bought, right? But it had to be a member of the family who lost it. And this is a way of keeping families together. It was a way of making sure that lands got back to their family. It was, it was God's grace to families. And so when Naomi realizes that Ruth happened to actually find one of the relatives that would be the kinsman redeemer. She says, you know, do you know what this means? This is incredible. But it doesn't just stop there. The plot actually thickens. Dun, dun, dun. Right? And here's the reason. Because the redemption that Boaz would need to do in this case would be enormous. In this case would be enormous. See, first of all, if he is going to redeem Naomi's land back, the first thing that he has to do is buy the land back. And that's an enormous debt. He doesn't have to do that. That's the first thing. The second thing he'd have to do in this case is that in order for them to actually be redeemed is that he'd have to member, he'd have to marry the last family member, which would be Naomi. But Naomi's too old to be married. And so he has to then marry the next person, which would be Ruth. But here's the problem. Ruth is a Moabite. 
So do you see what's be, what, what would have to happen? If Boaz is going to actually redeem, then he has to not only pay for the land, but he has to also marry, not Naomi, because Naomi can't produce an heir, and that's what would actually fully reinstate, but he now has to marry a Moabite woman. Well, who's going to do that? That's the enemy, remember? Sodomites, oh no. Why would he do that? That, that, That's the enemy of him and his people. You see that? Who would do that? And yet the story goes on that that night, Ruth went to Boaz when Boaz was there laying uh, down, sleeping amongst his gathered uh, grain because that's what they would do in the harvest is they would harvest and they'd put it all together and then, and then you would sleep there as kind of a, a way to celebrate. And Ruth goes and uncovers Boaz's feet in the middle of the night. And of course, Boaz wakes up a little startled, I'm sure. You know, and says, well, well what do you want? And, he sa- and she says, I am your servant, Ruth, cover me with your garment. Now, of course, in that, in that uh, culture, what that meant was, marry me. Marry me. This was a big risk on Ruth's part. Can you imagine? She goes, take me to be your wife. Redeem my family. Give us back a name. Give us back an inheritance. And he looks at her and he says, I'll do everything you ask. Can you imagine? So here is Boaz. He is the formal kinsman redeemer. He's the only one that could do it. And here he is and he says, okay, he is the bridegroom. And he does it. And so not only does he take on the debt of the family and he absorbs that, he takes it on himself, but on top of that, he marries Ruth. It's it's not just that he says, I'll give you enough money to get out of debt, but he marries Ruth. And now, and now Ruth becomes the heir and she begins, she gets everything that's his, even though she hasn't worked for it, even though she hasn't earned it yet, she gets it. Legally, immediately, automatically. In other words, the sins are not just paid for. The debts aren't just paid for. But there's a whole new life. He is the formal redeemer, you see. When you read the text, he is the redeemer that we can see plainly. But there's another redeemer. Not just the redeemer we can see. Number two, there's the Redeemer that we don't see. This is really interesting because scholars who point this out, when I went to go study this time and time again, I can't get over this because it's something that I have missed. But they point out that there is sort of a hidden Redeemer. See, in... Verse 15 that we read, he, remember when it says this, because your daughter-in-law loves you and is better than seven sons. Remember that? Now for us, we just read it, right? Didn't mean anything to us. But if we would have understood and lived in the culture then, that would have given us probably goosebumps and chills, you see? And here's why. Why did Ruth go with Naomi? So remember, 
Naomi was there and her, her husband had died, her sons had died. And she says, I'm going back to Bethlehem. And she had two daughters. Remember that? She had Orpha and Ruth. And, 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 and there she says, listen, go back to your land. Go back to your home. Go back to your families, right? I'm going to go to Bethlehem. Why did Ruth go? You see. Naomi says to Orpha and Ruth, you should go back. In other words, what she's really saying is this, is this, count the cost. As Sinclair Ferguson put it, they had to choose between Yahweh plus nothing in Bethlehem or everything minus Yahweh in Moab. That's what their choice was. The two daughters could choose. They could choose, we're going to have everything minus Yahweh in Moab or we can have Yahweh minus everything in Bethlehem. Because they would have lost everything going to Bethlehem because that was not their town. That was not their country. They were not citizens of that, of that place. They would have been aliens. They would have been immigrants. And they would have looked down upon. They would have been cast out, you see. Right. And Ruth famously says this to Naomi. She says, entreat me not to leave you. Forever you go, I will go. Wherever you lodge, I will lodge. Your people will be my people, your God, my God, where you die, I die, and there I will be buried. The Lord do, do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts you and me. That's what, she, that's what Ruth tells her. And when she uses that word God, it's not the, the general name Elohim for God, but she uses Yahweh. Yahweh. You see that? She, she uses a covenant language because what she's saying is this, I can't go back to, to, to that life because I'm no longer that. I'm not who I once was. Do you see what Ruth is saying? That she has been transformed by the gospel, that, that she has given her life to Yahweh, that she can't go back like her other sister-in-law and worship those gods any longer. That's not her. That's an old life. She has to go forward. It's God or nothing. In the old church, we used to sing that song, I have decided to follow Jesus. I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. No turning back. Remember that? I have decided to follow Jesus. Remember that? Remember that? The cross before me, the world behind me. The cross before me, the world behind me. No turning back. No turning back. And for Naomi and Ruth, that's exactly what it was. Ruth said, there is no turning back. And who does that? Because if you're going to be an immigrant, if you're going to choose to be an immigrant, it's always for a better life, right? It's always in hope for a better life. Nobody says, I'm going to go be an immigrant for a worse life. Nobody does that. If you're going to be an immigrant, it's always for a better life. It's for better prospects. You see? She knew that if she would have stayed, she could have had her family back. She would have had suitors. She would have had prospects. She would have safety. She would have power. You see? Yeah. And she gave it up. She gave it up. Because she knew first what she needed to do for God. But secondly, what was the right thing to do for Naomi? She knows if they go to Israel, there's a chance that Naomi won't die. 
See? Therefore, Ruth knows this, that if Naomi is going to get a life back, then Ruth has to throw hers away. If Naomi's going to have a name and a land and a progeny, Ruth has to essentially give up all of those things. Her own name, her own father, her own wealth, her own family. And she does. Why would she do that? Oh, but don't you see what the gospel does? Don't you see what the gospel does, what Jesus Christ does? When you give your heart to Christ, when you allow the Holy Spirit to transform you, you not only love God, but you love others. You see, the deep desire isn't just to know the story, but it's to tell the story. It's to love others. Pastor John Piper put it this way, when God put Christ in our condemned place, he did this not only to secure heaven, but to secure holiness, or even more precisely, not only to secure our life in paradise, but also to secure our love for other people. The Redeemer we, a Redeemer we see, a Redeemer we don't see, and all of this is pointing to the Redeemer we need. The Redeemer we need. It's interesting because in verse 14 and 15, it says this, praise be to the Lord who this day has not left you without a kinsman redeemer. Then it says this, may he become famous throughout all Israel. Now, wait a minute. May he become famous throughout all Israel. What are you talking about? Boaz is famous throughout all Israel. Everybody knows who he is. What are you talking about? So who is this talking about? What, what is the author saying here? Oh, the author is talking about the child of promise. Friends, it's time to get out our needle and our thread. My favorite story is Peter Pan. And I have the, I have the book and it's wonderful. And one of my favorite lines is when he talks about death. And he says to die would be an awfully great adventure. And what's interesting is here in Peter Pan... Um, what happens is Wendy ends up getting Peter's shadow. You guys remember that? Wendy ends up getting Peter's shadow and Peter Pan comes back for it, doesn't he? And she knew that he would come back because after all, it's just a shadow. Now she held on to the shadow, not really because she wanted the shadow, but because she wanted Peter Pan. And sure enough, in the story, that's what ends up happening. Peter Pan comes back to the nursery where he would visit so often to hear the stories that Wendy would tell of him and Captain Hook and all of the adventures that they got in with the lost boys. And so he shows up and wakes up Wendy and Wendy begins to take Peter's shadow and sew it back on to Peter. Friends, it would be a dangerous thing for us to leave this message and not take the shadow and sow it to the person. What you need to understand is this, is that Boaz is just a shadow. Ruth is just a shadow. They're just shadows pointing to a greater reality. 
there is something greater that they are showing us. There is some person greater that they are revealing. How silly would it be for us to just be in love with the shadow? If my wife were to walk down the aisle on our wedding day, and as she stands before me, if I were to go on to the ground and grab her shadow or go to the wall where her shadow was laid and try to grab its hand and maybe give it a kiss, you guys would think I'm ridiculous. Because why in the world would we ever just be settled enough for just the shadow when we can have the real thing? I wish my voice would let me preach it like I'm feeling it. You see? The real redeemer is the child born in Bethlehem. Do you see that? They went back to Bethlehem. They reaped in Bethlehem. They got married in Bethlehem. And a child was born in Bethlehem. Like Ruth. Like Ruth, Jesus Christ left what was familiar. He left. Like Boaz, not only did he pay your debt, but he reaches out and unites with you and all of his wealth becomes yours. Do you see that? His inheritance is yours. Like Boaz, he is your flesh and he is your blood. See, See, if Jesus Christ saved us simply by living a good life, then he didn't have to come and be flesh and blood. But he did. He wrapped himself in the womb of a virgin to be born truly human, to be our kinsman redeemer, you see. He didn't come just to tell us how to live and then go back up. But he became flesh and he became blood because he did it not just to tell us how to have a good life. He came by living that good life, by being the perfecter of our faith, by being our substitute and our mediator. To become a Christian is not to say, oh, I'm gonna try really hard to be like Ruth and to be like Boaz so I can one day maybe get to heaven. Oh my goodness, no. But to become a Christian is one that says, listen, there's only one person There's only one person, the greatest name, the one who was truly alien, the one who was cosmically, universally alien. Jesus Christ didn't just say, I'll throw my life away so you can have one and nothing but death will part for for you and I. No, he didn't just say that. But Jesus said, I won't even let death part us. You see? I won't even let death part us. born in a manger he left the ultimate name behind so that way we could say no condemnation now I dread Jesus all in him is mine alive in him my living head and clothed in righteousness divine would you stand to your feet as we get ready to receive the Lord's Supper as our hosts get prepared See, unless you see the real Redeemer, 
unless you've seen that he has covered you with his garment like Boaz did with Ruth, unless you see that he is ravished with your beauty and all of his spiritual wealth is now yours and in the sight of the Father, you are absolutely loved and you are absolutely accepted. Until you can see yourself like that, until you have that kind of joy and that kind of peace, then this Advent, this Christmas season will be reduced down to lights, bows, and red cupped peppermint lattes. Do you see that? Until you see that Jesus Christ is your kinsman redeemer, that he looked at you and he covered you and he married you even though you were an enemy of his. He loved you anyway. Until you know that, that you are fully accepted and fully loved, that my friend, you don't know the story. You don't understand Christmas. It's all gonna be commercialism and materialism and stress. But this morning, God offers you joy and peace.